Hey everyone, it's Marvin. This episode of Books and Boba was sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month is a curated book club subscription that offers five new and early release books to choose from each month. Um, their editorial team chooses the books, vetting them from hundreds a month, and members can choose up to three books a month for them to ship to you at home. Rira, you're, you were a member of Book of the Month, right? Yeah, I've had Book of the Month for uh, over a year at some point. I discovered a lot of new up-and-coming authors. I actually uh, was exposed to Pachinko by Min Jin Lee through Book of the Month. So uh, they do have a great list of diverse authors. And you can skip any month you want uh, any number of times. It'll transition into credits. So if you don't like any of the choices for that month, you can just wait until there is a book that you do want to pick up. Yeah, their April books include Be to Read by Emily Henry, The Guest List by Lucy Foley, Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore, The Library of Legends by Janie Chang, and The Paris House by Alex George. You can get your first month's book for just $9.99 by signing up at their website at bookofthemonth.com and using the promo code BOOKSANDBOBA, all caps. Book of the Month, because there's never been a better time to have books delivered directly to your door. And now, let's get to the show. You're listening to... Whoa! Hot luck. Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here to discuss our March 2020 book club pick, The Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Jukadar. And whew, what a March it has been. Rira, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing I'm doing okay. Uh, I'm an introvert, so I'm in my natural habitat. And <laughs> um, I've, I've been social distancing um, by just not going outside almost at all. <laughs> I think yesterday was the first time in like several days that I've actually felt sunshine on me. Um, <laughs> and I and I've just been hanging out with friends through um, like video chat we've been watching dramas and drinking alcohol and some of us are playing animal crossing so life has been um okay so far not the greatest but (laughs) you know bearable i think i'm doing a lot better than a lot of people (laughs) yeah so i've recently um just yesterday finally broke down and um, purchased a digital copy of animal crossing as an extrovert it's been a little strange to not, you know, interact with anybody besides my family for the last couple of days. And overall, it's been it's been a very um, isolating time for me. So um, I'm hoping that Animal Crossing will bring some much needed socialization to my life. Um, looking forward to developing this deserted island with the help of my capitalist friend, Tom Nook. And um, yeah, we should visit each other's islands one of these days have a book club yeah. discussion there <laughs> it would be it, it'll be really <clears throat> fun you can you can take some of my fruits and we can look at our look at each other's museum collection uh <laughs> sell sell turnips it's gonna be great it's 
looking forward to it. It's uh, gonna it's gonna be a better economy in the game rather than oh, <laughs> compared to the economy that we have now. <laughs> well, this isn't an economy podcast. This is a book podcast. So we're here to talk about our March 2020 book club pick. So as always, I'll start with the uh, jacket description. Yeah, uh, and then we'll jump right in. Um, it is the summer of 2011, and Noor has just lost her father to cancer. Her mother, a cartographer who creates unusual hand-painted maps, decides to move Noor and her sisters from New York City back to Syria to be closer to their family. But the country Noor's mother once knew is changing, and it isn't long before protests and shelling threaten their quiet neighborhood. When a shell destroys Noor's house and almost takes her life, she and her family are forced to choose, stay and risk more violence, or flee as refugees. More than 800 years earlier, Rawia, 16, and a widow's daughter, knows she must do something to help her impoverished mother. Restless and longing to see the world, she leaves home to seek her fortune. Disguising herself as a boy named Rami, she becomes an apprentice to Al-Idrisi, who has been commissioned by King Roger II of Sicily to create a map of the world. In his employ, Ravia embarks on an epic journey across the Middle East and the north of Africa, where she encounters ferocious mythical beasts, epic battles, and real historical figures. So as the book jacket uh, kind of already lays lays out, this is a dual narrative. Yeah. We've read a bunch of these recently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So right off the top, I uh, wanted to give our standard spoiler warning. Uh, we will be discussing all aspects of this book, the characters, the plot, um, and the themes. So if you are still reading the book and would like to be surprised and not spoiled, um, hit pause. Um, come back when you finish the book. Um, yeah. So this book, came, this book came out in 2018, but like the setting is set around 2011, right before... Um, the Syrian civil war broke out. Yeah, it set um, towards, I think, the beginning of the Arab Spring movement, which was a series of anti-government um, uprisings and revolts that happened in the Middle East in the early 2010s, a lot of them which eventually led to coups and civil wars, including Syria, which has been in a state of civil war ever since. It's a, like almost a decade now. Yeah, it's almost a decade. And also like it, it's... You know, it's kind of chilling that it's still um, like it's still a timely subject uh, with like Sy- the condition of Syria and also like refugees in general. Um, I can't really imagine like how that must have felt for Zayn Jukadar, the author who is Syrian-American. It must have been um, it must have been not easy at the very least to do the research and to write characters who are going through uh, such traumatic experiences. Yeah, it's um, the book itself is a chronicle of two journeys, um, one an epic kind of mythical tale and one a, um, I might say, even more epic tale of survival as a refugee um, during the Syrian conflict. And both sides of the story are equally harrowing and dangerous. But the one that features the main character, Noor, um, the danger feels a lot more real. Yeah. And like, as for the dual narrative, uh, I thought it was done really well. Um, it's not like 
each chapter is dedicated to uh, one perspective. It actually is all woven together. Um, and the interesting thing about um, Rawia, the 16-year-old map maker's apprentice, is that Noor knows Rawia's tale as like a bedtime story. It is a bedtime yeah. story that her baba used to tell her. And it's a story that she tells herself over and over again when she moves to Syria from Manhattan. And it's a story that she also just hangs on to throughout her journey um, to, to safety. And, um, it, and that's like one of the core themes of this book, how stories are precious in times of war and how it can, um, help us push past like dark times and how it can give us hope and a voice. And it's something that is it, something, it's a theme that is very timely. Yeah. I wasn't sure how far this book would lean into magical realism. So part of me kept expecting some sort of never ending story type of deal where the stories would kind of converge at some point and they would, they would like talk to each other. Um, but that never happened. <laughs> there's yeah, there are some elements of um, like with Rawia because it's a bedtime story. Um, there are like mythological creatures like there is uh, the rock, which is like this ginormous eagle, I guess. Yeah. And, and an asshole. Yeah. Like it contrasts pretty well with uh, Nor's tale. Like facing the danger of like rebels yeah. and insurgents and, and like being shelled. Right. Like the constant danger of the very real world of politics and revolution. What makes it really interesting is that uh, Nor and Rawia, the paths that they take are almost exactly the same. Yeah, in terms of their like their their journey, right? They hit, they hit the same geographies. It's pretty parallel, right? Yeah, it's it, it's really really parallel. Um, even down to Nor and Rawia um, pretending to be boys, uh, so that they can like go on their journey uh, safely. Yeah. So um, I just like, I guess we can start from like the beginning of of the book when Noor is in Syria and the circumstances that led her family to move to Syria from Manhattan. Yeah, we're introduced to her reminiscing about her father who just recently passed away from cancer, right? Yes, it was cancer. And Noor is a, I think, 12-year-old girl um, during this yeah, time. Yeah, 12-year-old um, girl. She is um, the only one of her sisters who wasn't born in Syria, right? She has two older teenage sisters. And we learned that um, they moved back to her her mother's hometown of Homs in, in Syria um, to... Um, yeah, so the reason why they moved from Manhattan to Syria is because after um, Baba's death, uh, it's just kind of unmoored the family. And um, Nora's mother is unable to sell her maps. And um, because she's unable to sell her maps, she is unable to provide for the family. They're, uh, they're in serious debt and they're unable to um, afford anything. So they, they make the difficult decision to go back to Syria where they do have like family support and um, more 
opportunities for Nora's mother to sell maps. And uh, this is this is in 2011, right before the Civil War broke out. So it's not like it's not it's not like the the story could have happened now, in my opinion, where like no one in their right mind would go from New York to Syria during during this tumultuous time. So like while you're keeping that in mind, you're just like, oh, okay, like they don't know what's going to happen They think they know that protests are happening, but because it's happening so far away from their town, um, they kind of reassure themselves saying, oh, the fighting won't reach here. Like I can hear bombs from I can hear bombs in the distance, but it but it's not my hometown. It's not a town where I know where my friends are. Yeah, and as so a reader, you know what's coming. And so every time um, Zane writes about the tremors of a bomb or a shell falling, like you kind of, there's that building of like existential dread for the reader because you know, like you already know this is going to be a refugee story. And so you're just waiting for that, that, that um, inciting moment to hit and bracing yourself for how bad it's going to be. And it's interesting how you described that, like that mounting tension of how close it's going to get, because I think it parallels to um, our situation right now where we're dealing with a pandemic that we all are unprepared for because we all thought it was far away. Um, not to put a direct relationship between the coronavirus and the Syrian civil war, but I think it says a lot about human nature to like ignore the warning signs because it's inconvenient. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think I, I think Zane did a really great job setting up, um, like like you said, the mounting dread. Um, and like for Americans, when we think about Syria, we, we think about refugees and because we think about refugees, we don't really understand that, uh, the country that they came from was actually very similar to ours. Like there were people who went grocery shopping and, uh, there were, there were kids who went to school and people with regular day jobs and people had internet. Like, uh, these are all things that Syria had, but because um, we immediately associate refugees with, you know, like um, poor, poor living conditions, we kind of forget um, that they did have like a modern home before uh, the bombings happened. So yeah. I think Zane did a really good job setting that up. Yeah. If there's anything this book does really well, it humanizes the stories of refugees um, especially through the eyes of a child who like may not completely understand why things are happening. And I thought that was, um, that was the biggest thing that set this apart from the other uh, refugee story that we read, Exit West, um, where it centered more on a married couple or in a, a young adult couple. Yeah, I think, young adult couple. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, seeing this through the eyes of Nor, who is like, internally culturally more american than anything else is also something that like this book does really well yeah and also it brings up the um it brings up themes of diaspora you know like where like where like how do you fit into a place where you weren't you know, like you didn't grow up in pretty yeah. much it's like the land where your parents are born it's the land where your family is from and they speak the language except you like Nora is unable to speak Arabic or but speaks she can very, understand, very... which is a very child of diaspora like experience that like 
I think we all can identify with where people are trying to keep things from you by speaking your native tongue where it's like, you know, I understand what you're saying, right? It's so much harder to speak the language than understand uh, the language by by listening. Yeah. I mean, for me, I can understand Mandarin Chinese pretty fluently, like even like the more complex words and terms. But when I speak, I sound like a fifth grader. Yeah, it's very relatable. <laughs> um, but but there's like a there's like a point in the first chapter where um, so so Nora has two older sisters, like like we said earlier, uh, there's Huda who is the eldest and seems to be like the most stable out of everyone in their family, uh, who seems to know herself and know her voice and really grounds the family uh, after Baba's death. And then there's uh, Zara, who is the middle sister, and she is not really coping as well as the other family members. Uh, She is bitter. She's angry. She's mean. Uh, in like that typical older teenage uh, sister way, where <laughs> also classic <laughs> where middle child, right? Is that isn't that yeah, classic middle child? Yeah. Um, and there's a point where where they go on an errand, and uh, Zara says, "Oh, Nor should Nor should um, ask the clerk for for I, cardinum. I, cumin. I forgot. Like, cumin. Oh, for cumin. Cumin. Yeah. So." Uh, Zara asks, Zara comes up with the suggestion that Nora should ask the clerk for um, cumin. And it's it's like a really mean moment because Zara says, what kind of Syrian are you? Like, <laughs> you don't you don't speak Arabic. You don't remember. Uh, you don't have any memories of this place. You're American. And I don't know, this is just like a feeling that I get sometimes when I go back to Korea. Um, like, obviously, I didn't grow up in Korea. I grew up here. And whenever I go back, um, even though even though I can speak the language like somewhat well, it's it's not enough to like blend in. Like people could probably pick up on the fact immediately that I'm American. And it's like you're you're Korean, but you're not considered Korean. You're always gonna be considered like lesser than, especially if you don't know the language as well as everybody else. And that's like something that a lot of diasporans go through when they go back to their parents' homeland. I mean, it's something that a lot of diasporans go through, even in their actual homes. You know, like I can't count how many times I've seen people try to put others down because they don't know about a certain food or a certain custom or a certain like piece of media. I think feeling like you're not enough of like either of your cultures is something that is especially like true for children of diaspora because I feel like the world is set up so that you have to be one or the other. And if you're in between, you're always on the outside. Yeah. And one of the major themes of this book is um, like when you are growing up in a diaspora and when you are displaced, you hold on to what you can. And even though you might not have a physical home anymore, um, there are places and people 
that you will find in your life that that will impact your identity. And uh, even though you don't visit those places and people, again, maybe like once or twice, um, they're still a part of you. And finding your voice is considered like a really big theme throughout this book. Nor definitely gains a lot more, I wouldn't even say confidence in herself, but more like strength um, as she has to literally fight to survive. And it was really hard to see like a child go through all this um, and knowing that she's not the only one who had to. Um, and then just the scars that this conflict leaves on innocent people. And scars are a big theme in this um, in this story, right? Um, Zane spends a lot of time describing um, not, not only the mental toll that being a refugee takes on you, but also the physical ones in great detail. But like one thing I did uh, appreciate about uh, this book being written from a child's perspective is that even though there are um, there are details about scars and uh, just like terrible things happening, there is this sort of optimism because Nora is holding on to this fable of um, Rawia. There's like the sense of adventure. Uh, whenever she feels scared, whenever um, kind of dread grips her, her uncle, Abu Sayyid, like tells her, what would Rawiya do? What would uh, she do on on this journey? Like you're you're just as brave as her. So there's like, because it's written from a child's perspective, um, she's, I guess, like more malleable. Like she is able to shift her traumatic experiences into... Um, an adventure because she's going to the same places as uh, Rawia is going. And that's something that we probably wouldn't have seen from an adult. I mean, an Hmm. adult fleeing from uh, their home and trying to find safety is not going to be thinking about fairy tales and thinking about this as a road trip. You know, that's only like a thing that child, like that's a thing that only children uh, will be able to like perceive. So switching gears to the other side of this dual narrative story, uh, we have the tale of Rawia, who is like this kind of a, it kind of reminded me of Mulan. Yeah, where, in a way, right? <laughs> yeah. Where she, um, she leaves home to find a way to provide for her uh, widowed mother uh, by posing as a boy and becoming an apprentice to a legendary map maker um, who is about to go on this epic quest to create the most accurate map of the known world, which apparently is just the Eurasian continent. Yeah, yeah, Eurasian continent plus <laughs> um, plus plus like parts of North Africa. Um, yeah, like the only real part, <laughs> the only like authentic part of. Um, Rawiya's journey is that Al Idrisi, the map maker, like he's an actual person. Like he actually went on uh, this journey to map out the known world. And uh, the book that he does publish, it it actually exists. And it was the most accurate map for, um, I think, like over a century. (laughs) Um, and like it was the first map to actually mention uh trade with uh China and uh 
it like collected tales from merchants and uh, tales of like uh, what goods came from each land. And um, it's really cool that like Zane incorporated that. I read his um, author's note at the very end of the book and he seemed to have gone into great research um, into Alidrisi and like that time period of King Roger II. Yeah, he was commissioned by um, the um, King Roger II, the Norman King of Sicily. And it was really cool to see like this historical, I guess, collaboration between a Christian ruler and a Muslim scholar. And it was really interesting that this story was set during the time of the Crusades where you had a lot of, because of like migration, you had a lot of people of different faiths actually living and working together on top of like the mounting conflict between them as well. Yeah. And it was like really cool um, that like we had a tale of like a Muslim woman who was also a warrior and um got to like go on this epic quest where she's like where she's like killing monsters and uh um going into battle and running away from uh from like other giant asshole eagles and angry men angry men who think that they're <laughs> spies and uh and want to like steal the map that they're working on because at that time like there weren't that many accurate maps so information was uh precious back then as it is now it like it definitely like rawia's story definitely is uh i think the lesser of the dual storyline I mean, like, it definitely adds <laughs> to the story because I really like the way that uh, it flows into Nor and how... Which is interesting because it definitely has more action. I mean, it has battles against monsters, battles between armies, There's like romance. sword fights. I mean, you can definitely see why Nor is so... Um, empowered by the story of Rawia. Like it, you know, maybe there's a minor commentary on the power representation in our stories as well. Um, but like it, it was interesting to me how I was itching to get back to Noor and like worried about their story, even while the Rawia story had a lot more action in it. Yeah. Um, um like in between in between chapters, um, uh, because Rawia and Nor are traveling across North Africa, um, there's like there's like these poems that break up the chapter, and the poems are in the shape of the country that they're in. And in the yeah. beginning, I was like, in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is like a cool aesthetic way to like break up the chapters. But then later on at the end of the book. Uh, you realize now, when you put a poem on a mantle in the beginning of the story, you know that poem's coming back later. I know, but I didn't. Of, I didn't yeah. realize that it was gonna like come back uh, the way that it did, which was um, Nor actually gets separated from half of her family. Uh, her mother and uh, her eldest sister Huda they have to stay behind, and um, Nor is given the map that her mother was working on. Um, before the bombing happened and during their journey uh, across uh, across uh, countries. 
And she discovers that the map was made for her. It's color coded uh, according to her. Um, right. Because what is um, it called? Nora, like has, Nora has synesthesia, which is, oh, synesthesia. Yeah, which is um, a condition where you're able to see sounds. Like music and sounds form visual stimuli, uh, which is used really interestingly in throughout the entire story. Um, because Nora has synesthesia, she's able to see the colors of people's voices. And that becomes a way not only for Zane to write in a colorful way about emotions, but also um, to give her kind of like a sixth sense when it comes to reading the situation around her. Um, even though as a child, she may not understand the entire context of things happening. Like she knows when things are wrong, when she sees like the colors of a person's voice change. And it also helps uh, Nora um, find safety. Like in, like in the very beginning of the book, they after their house gets bombed, they decide to go to Abu Sayyid's home, hoping that it's still intact. And because the streets are bombed and everything is destroyed to rubble around them, uh, they don't know which way to go. Everything is unrecognizable. Um, but Nora is able to use her ability because it's tied to memory. Um, so yeah, like Zane actually has a uh, synesthesia. Uh, so that comes from like a very personal background. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned, her mother created this map specifically for her because she color coded the different labels in a way that only she can read. And that's how she understands where her mom wanted her to go, which is to find her uncle in Ceuta, uh, which is like a small, I think it's an island. Um, I don't think it's an island. Um, I think it's still part of Africa. Okay. It's part of like North North Africa. It's close to Morocco. Right. Um, it's not like in, it's not in Spain, but it's considered part of Spain. Yeah, it's a Spanish territory, kind of like how Puerto Rico is yeah. part of the United States. So Ceuta becomes their destination, right? That becomes the objective of their journey in the latter half of the book, in which the stakes are really raised because now you have like the two youngest members of this family trying to survive a trek through the desert when all the legal channels of transportation has been closed to them, right? They have to travel alongside smugglers um, and also hide themselves in a refrigeration truck um, to get to where they need to go and like every single moment. And I think this is the reason why I was so eager to get back to Nora's story in between the Rawia parts was because like I was genuinely worried about them and wanted to see how they were doing because they were putting themselves in so much danger throughout this entire like back half of the book. Well, there's a there's a there's a quote that uh, Huda says to um, to Noor in the beginning of the book, and she says it's important to know who you are. You can get lost. You have to listen to your own voice, and I think that really comes through when uh, Zara and Noor are together because they have no one else to lean on. Uh, the older and more stable. Uh, and more responsible members of their family. They're not there. So they only have each other to count on. And um, like when Nora finds out that her mom wants them to go to Ceuta, um, you know, it's kind of done in, in a way that only Nora can understand. 
And her, like, I think at, at some point, like Zara is just like, are you sure like this is where they want us to go? It doesn't really like this map doesn't really make sense. But Nora is like, no, like this is where um, like this, this is where um, mom wants us to go. Like these are all the places that Lawia went. And the only place that is unnamed on the map is Ceuta. So like to her, like it's very clear and she has to like, trust in her own uh i guess trust in her own voice trust in her own um story i don't know i thought it was like really really well done um and it's also like i also really liked zara and uh nor's relationship throughout the book because you go from like oh you're not it's like oh what kind of syrian are you to now like being like well we both don't have a place where we belong at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like Zara really steps up when she has to become the elder member of the family. And part of the refugee experience is that you have to grow up fast. Like, you have to, in a sense, lose your innocence to, like, survive. And, I mean, something that um, Zane wrote in his afterward is that in conflicts like these, you know, the people that suffer the most are the women and children who are who get caught in the middle. Um, because they're the most vulnerable. And we, we see that in that, um, I guess, trigger warning. Uh, we're going to talk about the attempted rape scene. But in the attempted rape of Huda, while they were, I guess, crossing, it was either in Jordan or Egypt. And they went on an errand to... Um, to get lamb for uh, the end of Ramadan, right? Yeah. And basically, these they get cornered by these two boys who try to force themselves onto Huda. And they eventually get chased away. But I think that was the moment when Noor started her, like, kind of hardening of herself, right? When she realizes that she was powerless against this horrible thing that was happening to her sister. Yeah, and uh, it, was also, it was also a moment where she kind of lost trust in boys and men. Um, Yusef is, like, a refugee that they also uh, travel with for, like, most, mostly throughout the journey. And Noor can't really trust him after that incident because like in her mind uh it's it's just a such a traumatic experience for her and also her sister but but it's just like I can't do anything to help my sister I'm small I'm not like Rawia I'm not a warrior it's like a moment for her where like her her innocence is broken and um I think it's Abu Said after after the um, traumatic experience is the one who's like reminding her like no you are brave you are more you you are like Rawia more than you think and R.I.P. Um, Abu Said. Abu Said, man that was <laughs> that was like a gut-wrenching death I mean like I knew that that Abu Said would pro- probably die I didn't know that I thought they would all like survive together at some all point survive. I don't know well, it's a story about like it's a story about refugees and everyone suffers a loss. Um and a lot of the time it's not just their home, it's the people that they love. Um and also just like how Abu Said is a father figure to Noor. So because Noor has lost her father, I thought that throughout the story, uh, at some point Abu Said would also uh pass away. 
I, I guess we can get more into Noor and Abu Sayyid's relationship because I think it is like one of the strongest relationships in this book. Yeah. Um, so Abu Sayyid is the, I guess, an old family friend of Noor's father. Um, he was orphaned at a young age and pretty much was raised in Noor's Noor's father's household. I really like the bond between Noor and Abu Sayyid because they're both people who have suffered losses and lost people in their lives. And they find, um, they hang on to memories of those that, that they have lost in like a tangible form. Like with Noor, she has her Baba's stories and uh, Abu Sayyid, he hangs on to his son uh, through rocks because he's a geologist and he taught his son to love rocks as much as he did. And uh, he has like this pebble that uh, he and his son had picked up from planting the olive grove and uh, his son leaves it behind. And it is like his only uh, like tie to his son now. So I really liked how both of them have like this memento of of like the people that they lost and they're able to like bond together. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone in the story has a memento too, right? Like Zara has the bracelet that their, her father gave her, um, which she sells to provide for Noor uh, when they're separated, which is in her own way kind of, her stepping up to kind of take that role as caregiver for her sister in a situation where she might be the only family she has left. So there's this part where uh, Zara and Noor, they're in a refrigerated truck and they're attempting to get to Ceuta. Um, And Zara is telling Noor about her memories of Syria, saying that my memories of Syria, my memories of home is the food that we ate and uh and summer days and um she says i wish you could have seen it and uh, i thought that was like a really touching moment you know where she's able to share something of her homeland to her younger sister which is something that our parents do uh, diaspora parents and also a reminder that like refugees they don't come to our countries because they want to you know, they had a good life. They had family. They had culture. If there wasn't war and death, there would be no reason for them to go to another country to seek um, safety and asylum. And it sucks that Noor's impression of Syria is now all about war and devastation. Um, even though, okay, so like there, there's this one quote that really stuck out to me. Um, and I, I guess we can segue into into that. I forgot who says this. I think it's Nora actually in her narration. And she says, but safety is not about never having bad things happen to you. It's about knowing that the bad things can't separate us from each other. And, and I said this before, um, even though like terrible things are happening there is this optimism that Noor has as a, as a child going through this. And, uh, and it's also like a lesson that her family has because they lose so much that they only have each other. And even in like really, really um, dark times and times of uncertainty, uh, there are moments of joy. There are moments that they can hang on to. Um, one thing that I really liked was how 
people are still creating art and they're still finding reasons to laugh and joke, uh, even throughout like the grimmest situations. Yeah, like the theme of stories pop up a lot. Um, there's a quote that Abu Sayyid tells Noor, and it's, people always think dying is going to hurt, but it does not. It's living that hurts us. Stories ease the pain of living, not dying. Um, I guess we can move on to wrapping up the discussion with um, how, how it ends. And it definitely ends on a positive note. Um, I mean, our families are a little worse for wear, but still pretty much intact, right? Um, Nora and Zara end up in Ceuta. And eventually, after like a very daring escape from a refugee camp, um, they are reunited with um, their family at their uncle's place. And they all kind of find their way back to each other. What did you think about how it all wrapped up? I thought it was really cool the way uh, Zara and uh, Nora was able to find their uncle's house. Because the way they found it was because of Nora's uh, synesthesia. Um, because like she because she had like the broken tile that her mother had given her, like the broken tile necklace from uh, her mother's old home in Ceuta that they sold to their uncle. Um, She's able to, uh, she's also like able to find out where the home is because she has heard so many stories uh, about Awia going to Ceuta. And she's able to like identify like which hills are in the same direction of like her uncle's home. And when they go to, when they finally stumble upon the house, she uh, puts like the broken piece of tile into the fountain that's right by the house and it fits perfectly. And I thought it was like a really uh, visual and cool way to, um, for them to like, it was, it was like a, it was like a cool map, you know? Yeah. Um, in a yeah, story so about I maps. I thought that was like a really, yeah, in a story about maps. So I thought that was like a really cool way uh, to to show how they got home. Um, and I also really like the very last scene where Noor drops the the stone into the water, like the stone that's kind of implied to be the rock's eye. Yeah. Um, a stone that she hears her Baba's voice from. Because it's like kind of like the stone from Harry Potter where you can communicate with the dead. <laughs> um, it was just like a nice symbol. Like Nora being like, I'm strong enough to stand on my own two feet now. I don't need my Baba's voice to guide me anymore because I'm not lost. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Like I, I just thought that that was like a very poignant way to, to end it. Yeah. Um, and the final scene where she writes in her own story in the blank space on the map um, that her mom pretty much left for her, right? I guess it's a representation of her accepting that um, her story is a part of her family story and taking responsibility for that um, by putting it down on paper now that she's found her footing again. Because at the end of the refugee road, you find safety. And after you find safety, you start rebuilding, right? You start putting the pieces of your life back together wherever you are. And I mean, that's kind of Another theme throughout the the entire book uh, is you have to make the best of what your situation is. And as long as you don't lose sight of what's important, there's always a way forward. You know, we see that as they're moving from Syria to Spain. And we also see that in um, Rabia's story where like they keep 
getting put in these predicaments from powers outside of their control, from like zealot war leaders to, you know, giant eagle monsters to even like the sacking of their their patron's castle by rebels. This is a story where the protagonists, like a lot of shit happens to them, but they find the strength to, or they, they find keep the going. will to keep going. Yeah. And each place that they go through, um, it, it becomes a part of them. It, it helps them get stronger and helps them um, find themselves in, in a way. Um, I mean, I know I complained about this being kind of a heavy read at the, at the beginning of the conversation, but I'm glad I read it. And I think you mentioned this um, offline to me, but it's written in a very beautiful way. The prose is really, really... Um, it's really lyrical. Yeah. I mean, it starts off with a poem, so you know. Yeah, it's very um, because because it's lyrical because the uh, the prose is so vivid. It does give like a fairy tale quality to it, and also it like matches Nor's uh, synesthesia because like she's able to see colors uh, through sound and through um, through words, and it's. Like, I think it really works all together uh, with the prose and, um, and like, the symbolisms of the maps. And I don't know. It's just really beautifully written, um, even though a lot of shit happens, like you said. <laughs> Not the most articulate way uh, of, of putting it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not the writer here. I'm pretty sure for... A lot of people, this is going to be their first time reading about Syria, reading about um, uh, about Syrian refugees. Yeah. And hopefully it kind of opens their eyes and give them empathy. And I think that is the power of books and representation, you know? Yeah. Creating, creating empathy. Yeah, it's it's real easy to just generalize them as people who just want to come and take, but it's never the whole truth. And and you know, we do see examples of great kindness throughout this book. People who, you know, they may have lost so much, but they're still willing to give what they have to other refugees, and uh, they're still willing to help out strangers. Yeah. So yes, they are not just people who are trying to. <laughs> invade our countries and take our jobs on that note i guess um any final thoughts on the book itself um i recommend people read the book through audiobook i read this book through audiobook and i think it really helped because um one with pronunciation because even though i probably pronounced names incorrectly throughout this episode uh like to be able to hear the correct pronunciation like that was really nice and also just like um because the prose was so beautiful and ly- lyrical having a narrator read it out loud to you it definitely helps visualize a lot of things and um and i think the narrator did a really good job capturing all of the characters voices uh and it was it, like it was very very distinctive. Um, overall, I liked the book. I wish that I read it during a time when it wasn't 
<laughs> it wasn't uh I, I wish I kind of didn't read it during a pandemic, but I think because we are in a pandemic, it definitely hits harder. Um Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the effects of this pandemic too is gonna be pretty far reaching, you know. Um I mean they're very well could be another refugee crisis in the near future, especially in countries where medical capacity isn't up to par. There's going to be a lot of like medical refugees, I feel like, trying to get into places with medical capacity. Um, I don't know. Um, it's It might not be good. It's an uncertain time. Yeah. It's an uncertain time, and we have to hold on to what we can. And uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I really enjoyed reading this book too. And even though it was a heavier read, it's a good reminder that, you know, people, I think, and we see it in, you know, our healthcare workers and people trying to you know, set up donations and um, services for our first responders, but people are inherently giving and people inherently want each other to do well. And like, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a natural human state to be communal and to want the best for everyone. Um, as opposed to, you know, sometimes you feel like people are only out for themselves. Um, I think reading through the story of Noor and Rawia and seeing that deep down, everyone wants the same thing, which is to live in stability and to be able to be themselves without worrying about dying or danger from others. Um, I think it's, a, it's an important message for today's world where we're about to see a lot of people lose that stability and, you know, reminding ourselves that we're stronger together is an important message to have. And and with that, I guess that'll do it for a discussion of A Map of Salt and Stars with Zane Jukadar. As always, if you have anything to add to our discussion, um, please let us know on our Goodreads group. Uh, we always love to hear uh, what our book club members are saying. Um, so please sound off. Uh, so, like we said, we... It, it would have been nice to read a lighter book this month uh, during quarantine. But don't you worry, we're going to be reading a lighter book, <laughs> a lighter book for the month of April. Um, yeah, for April 2020, we're reading Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, the first book of a sassy cat mystery series by Jennifer J. Chow. Um, it is a mystery, right? It is a murder mystery novel, but it's like uh, there are some like really funny aspects to it like there's a talking cat named marshmallow <laughs> and uh it's like there are like uh dog groomers pet groomers in it uh the main character is it becomes like the main suspect and she has to like prove her innocence and um from what i've heard it's a pretty fun read it, it just came out in march so it is a brand new book um I know that a lot of March and April authors who have books coming out, they are unable to promote as usual because of the quarantine. They're unable to go to speaking events and signings. So uh, for this month, I wanted to pick a new book. Yeah. And we're reading Jennifer Chow's book. <laughs> I'm excited. Please we support all... your local bookstores. <laughs> I'm excited. We're always, um, I think we always have a lot of fun 
with uh, murder mysteries. So um, I'm looking forward to this one. Um, but yeah, I hope you all are keeping safe um, at home. Remember, stay home, stay safe. Don't get each other sick. Um, curl up with a book. Yeah, it- play a lot of Animal Crossing. But, you know, reading a book is probably a better decision. <laughs> <laughs> There's never been a better time to catch up on that TBR list, including our April 2020 book club pick. Yeah. Before um, before we close, I would like to apologize to some of our listeners. If you're hearing noises, uh, ambient noises in the background, that's my fault. Uh, I don't have soundproof walls in my apartment. So there's been landscapers that's been going on for like over an hour. So I apologize for any... Uh, <laughs> like for the less than perfect audio quality but thank you for listening yeah um i guess we'll see you all we'll we'll see y'all next week we actually have a really cool author interview coming up with iw gregorio the author of one of our earlier book club picks none of the above we'll be talking to her about her brand new book this is my brain in love so um stay tuned for that We'll, we'll bring you that author interview in about a week but with that um rira I'm wishing you another good week in isolation. Um, I'll see you on Adam Crossing, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and produced and edited by Marvin Yue. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories in the Asian-American community. You can learn more about our fellow Potluck Podcasts, such as, first of all, the College Bruce Saturday School and Asian Americana, by checking out the website podcastpotluck.com. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.